Skycast Episode 3, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing Episode 403, The Four Horsemen. Before we get started, uh, Sarah and I just wanted to take a minute and talk about our overall feelings for this episode (laughs) because, oh boy. It's a little bit hard for me to put my feelings into words right now because I have so many. Yeah, I think this is everything that we have ever wanted all wrapped up in one episode. We'll get into it a, a lot more later, but just to say we've this was an incredible episode and I think we're both still kind of in shock. It's episodes like this that that's why I love the show is when you see something as as character driven as this is up on the screen. Um I think this is probably tied for my favorite episode with Nevermore from last season. Mm. Um so I, I'm still like trying not to fangirl too much because it was so good. <laughs> yeah, and I think it was just such a relief after we got two super heavy plot-driven episodes to have this space to just watch this character development. Um, space to just breathe. Yeah, it was so good. Um, I love the title, The Four Horsemen, yeah. and I'm really excited about how it kind of relates to this episode. Um So we know, of course, that the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we have war, we have pestilence, we have famine and death. Yes. Um, And of course, I think there's some literal meaning with this uh, and tying in with the second dawn cult that we find out about in this episode. But there also might be a bit of a metaphorical reason, you think? Yeah, I think that the four horsemen actually represent specific stories um that sort of intersect in this episode and we can sort of like break those down I think that's how we want to talk about it this episode yeah we kind of see this episode as almost four short stories each talking about how a different part of this world is going to deal with the apocalypse and like it's going to interplay a lot with characters um and character arcs and it's amazing and I'm really excited to talk about it yeah so we're not going to go in sequence here we're going to kind of stick towards like the characters and how they represent each one of these um horsemen if you will um so don't get thrown off by that (laughs) Uh, so we wanted to start with war, and we see this plotline as being the Octavia Roan plotline, um, I think for obvious reasons. Yeah. There's a lot of unrest in Polis right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we open up with that. We have Roan coming to talk to Octavia. Um, first and foremost, before we say anything, did he borrow Octavia's cloak from last episode? No, I think she just started a fashion trend, and now <laughs> everyone's wearing cloaks. <laughs> I mean, like, is there anything more conspicuous than someone walking around with a cloak on in the middle of the day? Especially your king. It's not like they don't recognize him. I know, but he's, like, being followed by soldiers. He has you know? bodyguards. <laughs> just... And, of course, we have Octavia over here sharpening her knives. Like yeah, a freaking that's not... cliche. She's an assassin. Sharpening her blades, like, on the belt. <laughs> you have, like, the cheering sound. Oh, so that really sets the scene. Yeah, we, we know what we're getting into. Uh, so we have Roan tell her and Indra that the flame has been stolen from his quarters and he needs Octavia to find it for him without alerting people that it's gone. Um, first and foremost here, we get Octavia's really amazing trust in Indra. It's basically, you know, if she if you want to say something to me, you say something to her as well. Yeah, Roan, again, not as trustworthy, but I think he, he gives in pretty quickly because of time here. But it is really nice to see that Octavia stands by Indra and really defends her. Mm-hmm. Um, Rowan thinks the new flame keeper stole it. And this is the girl that we saw back in episode one who calls blasphemy. 
mm-hmm. um, which we've been really excited to see introduced. Yeah. Um, but he thinks the flamekeeper stole it because whoever stole the flame would have had to care about it more than their own life because they'd known that if they get caught, they would die. Right. And that really, I think, suggests to him like a fanatic mm-hmm. or like a really religious devotee. So as Octavia leaves, Rowan tells Indra that Octavia is being called Sky Ripa, death from above. And Indra replies that she is so proud, but she honestly doesn't look proud. She looks nervous. Mm-hmm. And we do later come to realize that it's because Octavia is going after her daughter. But it, I do wonder, I mean, all of that aside, is she pleased with Octavia's transformation? I don't, I would, I would say no. I think she's worried about her. She looked like you know she said it in this very sarcastic tone like I'm so proud which is something that like a mom would say about their daughter when she like went and got like a nose ring you know Mm -hmm. it's just I think she ordinarily would be very pleased with Octavia's um like skills and all of that but I think knowing what she does about Octavia it's concerning to her Yeah, I think she's been watching the path that Octavia is walking down. And it's not the path of a warrior. It's the path of a murderer, which I think she sees as two different things. Oh, absolutely. And I think Indra has such a strong code of honor. And I don't think there's anything honorable in what Octavia is doing, according Mm -hmm. to Indra. Yeah. Um, Later on, we get to meet Gaia for the first time. Uh, She's sneaking away with the flame. Super, super covert. (laughs) With her, like, face mask. Yeah, she, I mean, she still blends in a hell of a lot more than Octavia or Roan in their giant cloaks. So I, she's winning in the disguise category, in my opinion. But Octavia is following close behind. And I can't figure out if she realizes that Octavia is following her. I don't, I don't think so. Well, Octavia ends up getting stopped by a group of tech looters. Because um, she's not as covert. She's not anywhere near as covert. And also, she's quite recognizable. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, she wasn't wearing a cloak this time. She's just, <laughs> just her face. <laughs> um, Ilian steps in, though, before the, the looters can kind of push her around too much. Um, he is part of this group now because he refuses to let his mind be taken over by technology ever again. And so this group is kind of going around and destroying tech in the city yeah they're like the anti-technology cult mm-hmm. like or capital l for looters i guess yeah i don't think we have like a an official title name for this group but i'm gonna call them capital l looters right but i i do think this seems like a new development it doesn't seem like some cult that's been around for a oh, while yeah I'm, i think this is in direct reaction to the city of light and all of the the trauma that we saw there from last season why do you think Ilian stepped in here? Do you think it was clear that Octavia was on a mission? I mean, she always kind of walks around like she's on a mission, so. Uh, I think he steps in because I, I I, think he's kind of scared of her. I don't think, I think he knew, he knew that if they started trouble with her, she would just she would finish him. Yeah, <laughs> and I think he's not, he's just not interested in doing that right now. I also think that he suspects something because he does order them to follow her. Mm-hmm. Um, Octavia keeps going and she finds Gaia in the temple and the two begin to fight over the flame. But just as Octavia moves in to kill her, Indra shows up and stops her because Gaia is her daughter. What? What? (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say, Indra took her sweet time showing up. Like she was really close to losing her daughter here. Yeah, that's, I think, the drama of being a television (laughs) show. I mean, I realize that, but like, Indra, come on. (laughs) Um, so huge reveal here. Did we see this coming? Um, no. 
I think I, I sus- there's been a lot of marketing materials around this. So I think we started getting an inkling of this. If you had asked me prior seasons, do we think Indra had any children? I would have said, I don't think so. I didn't. She doesn't seem to be very maternal. Um, but I think knowing what we knew, given the promotions that we've seen, I maybe was starting to suspect something like this. But I, I don't think so. I had heard rumors going around that Indra had a daughter, but I honestly didn't believe them. <laughs> yeah, she just doesn't seem... Also, like, having Octavia as, like, kind of her surrogate daughter, like, I just assumed that that was, like, the mother-daughter relationship we were going to get right. from I mean, Indra. It's as close as we might get for a while, at least, from Indra. Yeah. Um, but I'm really excited by this new development. I do, too. I, I, I'm i thrilled with this Gaia plotline. I think it's going to bring out a new side of Indra that we haven't seen yet. Yeah, and I think it's also going to give Octavia maybe, like, not so much a competition, but also just, like, another way of approaching Indra. Um, I'm really excited to see how they relate to one another, her and Gaia. I mean, for Octavia, it's immediately like, okay, Gaia is now part of the family. What are right. gonna- like, let me just like adopt you <laughs> as my stepsister. <laughs> How long do you think it's been since Gaia and Indra have actually seen each other? I think it's been a really long time. I'm thinking like at least years. Well, I think at least before, I feel like before we met Indra. So at least. I mean, that's only been like, what, seven, eight months ago. <laughs> No, but I, I feel like at that point, she, she'd so normalized to it that it didn't even like come up in normal conversation. It didn't even seem to bother her. Well, I mean, it probably did, but she didn't show it. And I must, I gotta say like years. I'd say like five at least. I was going to say three. Three. Yeah. A long time. Long, <laughs> long time. Especially in this sort of like shortened lifespan that they've got here, you mm-hmm. know. Um, Octavia is just blown over by this news, as are we all. Mm-hmm. But she thinks that Roan's going to show mercy if she gives him back the flame. Uh, Indra, however, does not hold that same opinion. No. Um, and I love how Octavia, we, like, see her take the split second to calibrate the news, and then, like, immediately she's like, okay, let's, like, figure out how to save Gaia. Yeah, it, it doesn't, it, like, she, it shocks her, and she goes, okay, new reality, moving on. Like, doesn't <laughs> even take a beat. She just immediately switches gears and is like okay Gaia is my baby I must protect her she's part of she's part of us and there's not even a second hesitation there Mm -hmm. so great um Gaia is refusing to get the flame though and she thinks that giving it to Asgata is a perversion of her faith um so why why a perversion necessarily for just Asgata is that for all of the clans or just Asgata in particular that's what I was wondering. I feel like she's particularly anti-Asgata, and it feels like even more than she would be just, like, another clan leader who wasn't a Nightblood. I feel like there's got to be something specific about why she is so anti-Asgata, but I don't know. I mean, I think we'll have to figure that out later. I mean, I think first and foremost, it's that flame keepers should always have the flame if it's not in a commander. I think that's what their religion is based on. Yeah, but she seems vehemently against Asgata. No, no, no. I, I, I agree. But I think that first and foremost, it's that any no clan leader should have the flame because it's a religious symbol and it belongs in the church. Of course. Um, but I also do think... I think Asgata's a little bit more bloodthirsty than the other clans, and they do keep slaves, as we found out from episode two, and that causes a lot of tension. Um, so I think that's where all of that distrust and disgust is coming from. Yeah, I mean, I'll be interested to find out more about that. It was definitely something we bumped on. 
We also find out here that Indra, it sounds, used to be more devout in faith than she is now. What do you think made her stray? I don't know if maybe maybe the act of Gaia leaving made her stray. I've been thinking about, you know, I can't de- I can't decide whether, you know, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg situation. Like, did Gaia sort of become more devout or more devoted more devoted to the religion once she witnessed her mother straying from it and sort of like re- reacted to that or vice versa did um Indra witness Gaia sort of become more and more involved here and sort of taken away from her and because of that decided that you know she couldn't abide by this and stray away I am dying to know the backstory and I don't know if we'll get this but my theory is that Indra be it her husband or her lover or whoever she had this child with, somehow died in a bad sort of accident uh, too early. And I think it made Indra stray from the faith, and I think it made her daughter turn to faith. Maybe. This, is, this is totally just like I'm pulling this out of thin air, but that is like how I've kind of seen this. I was thinking about maybe the way that she lost um, her spouse or partner too. Indra seems to me is the, somebody who like respects like the finality of death and sort of that, you know, it's everyone has their time to leave. I don't know if it would like, or maybe that's like a new way of coping. Maybe she wasn't always like that, but it seems to me like that it wouldn't, it wouldn't like strike her as particularly like divinely unfair if her, her person was killed enough to like make her move from for or against a religion I don't know we'll see I mean I do I do think that 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 could be the instigating factor to yeah. her becoming the person she is now yeah but again totally made that up <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not um but just something to keep in mind moving forward uh we discovered that Gaia was actually groomed for leadership after Indra but she has decided to follow a religious path instead um but Indra firmly believes that it was Gaia's duty to lead her people not to go to religion so we both we both know what it's like when a parent wants a different path for you than you want for yourself. Yeah, I think at, at the same time, you and I were like, well, we know what that's like. Um, we've both sort of chosen our own paths in this life. We both moved away very far away from our homes, moving to New York and sort of starting our own stuff here. And I think it just is, is really beautiful that even against this post-apocalyptic backdrop that we can still see this sort of like human tension and these problems that are sort of like you know forever regardless of situation um come up again and again and I it's just really nice to see right I think that this problem more so than maybe any other problem is something that people teens watching the show can actually identify with yeah you know teens aren't always making the call about who lives or dies but having that kind of you know soul deep disagreement with your parents about the things that you want to be doing in your life is just so universal what's best for you that you feel like you have a calling that you need to pursue that your parents like actively at least maybe don't understand or don't appreciate you know these are like core human feelings I think that everyone grapples with when they grow up it's growing pains Mm mm-hmm I also loved seeing here, or maybe loved isn't the right word, but I'm glad that they put this kind of mixture of hurt and jealousy that Gaia has that Indra found a, basically a replacement daughter. Yeah, I think Gaia is more, not suspicious, but hesitant about like getting to know Octavia than Octavia is getting to know Gaia. I kind of feel like Octavia in this situation is like a brand new like puppy or something, and <laughs> Gaia is like, I'm not sure what you are, but... Octavia is just like so happy to see her 
I mean, Octavia loves Indra, and so she's immediately like, okay, Gaia's part of Indra. I now love Gaia. Let's, yeah. you know, move forward. Yeah, but it, uh, Gaia doesn't have the luxury of, of that, of reciprocating that. Um, Octavia does point out that Roan sent her to kill Gaia, so if she doesn't come back with the flame, he's going to send others after her who won't have her same reservations about killing Gaia. Um, and, and without the flame, she says, you know, the king is vulnerable, but we'll need to fight to keep him on. Um, and she says specifically, if that's what you want me to do, Indra, I'll do it for you. Their relationship gives me life. Yeah, it's just so beautiful to see how devoted Octavia is to Indra and um, unconditionally loves her. I think at this point, um, she's willing to risk everything, her own safety, her life to save Indra and her daughter. Um, and it just it's such a clear demonstration of how much she loves her. And this is the most emotional we've seen Octavia this season in a in a non-killing way. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, like, you can hear it in her throat. She has this sort of, like, thickening. She's almost almost crying. I mean, she, she really is at a dilemma here. I mean, she knows what it's like to be estranged from a family member. I think also, too, I mean, she like, it, it goes against her instincts to um, not do the thing that is self-preserving. And, you know, I think in another circumstance she would just kill this person and and you know have that be done but she's really at a loss here she's like what are we gonna do um and I love that she looks to Indra here because she trusts her so completely that she knows she'll make the right call mm-hmm. um suddenly the looters show up including Ilian and they break into the temple and basically start ransacking um Ilian steals the flame from Gaia and destroys it and like I was shook I did not see that coming well at first I was thinking okay they've stolen it but something's gonna stop them from destroying it and then they destroyed it and it took me a second and I was like are are we are we going in this route like we're really doing this I think the second that they said that her necklace was a totem I was like well they're gonna use that as a fake out I knew it before this really even developed I didn't even catch that the first oh, time around. I was waiting for it when he came in and like ransacked the backpack I was like they're gonna find the fake necklace like I was so ready for this to, to happen I wasn't surprised at all I had caught in the scene I thought that her necklace I thought she'd literally put the flame in her necklace as like for safekeeping no, I like I like had missed Octara Indra saying that it was a fake the first time around so but yeah. then I like kind of switched my brain after I was taking a second to be like, okay, wait, is the flame really destroyed? And then I remembered, well, maybe, was that a fake? And yeah, yeah, I kind of went from there. But for a second, I was shocked. Yeah, I just, I just wasn't shocked. I wasn't surprised in the slightest. Well, fine. Sorry. <laughs> Some people aren't as perceptive as you, Brittany. <laughs> I mean, nobody can be. Um, and I love that they, they like waited all this time to come in. They like were obviously as interested in the Octavia, uh, Indra, Gaia family drama as we were because they just politely waited outside until Indra and Gaia had said all they could say. Yeah, this is the closest thing to TV that they get. So like, <laughs> let them have this. This is like they're like Degrassi. <laughs> yeah, this is like they're soap, op- soap operas. Um, so after the looters leave, Octavia is like picking up the broken pieces of the flame and Gaia thanks her for her plan. And we find it was all a fake out. The destroyed flame was just a replica of the flame that Gaia has on her necklace. Um, which again, I had like figured it out by that point, but it was still, (laughs) it was still just a great plot point. I loved it. Yeah, it was great. Um, and I think it's really interesting that Gaia wears a necklace that's a replica of her faith in the same way that people today will wear like a cross or a Star of David. It's just a nice touch for the hundred. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's a really good piece of world building. Um, before Gaia leaves, she tells Indra that they both got what they wanted. So what do you think she's referring to? So here? I actually feel like this has like sort of like a dual meeting because I, I think on one hand she's referring to like the excuse for, you know, the flame has been destroyed and at least they have something to go back and tell Rowan, you know, so that he doesn't pursue um, Gaia. But I also think Gaia's talking about Octavia as like a dutiful daughter because she's she's saying to Indra like you got what I got what I wanted I get to leave with the flame and you get what you wanted which is this daughter who's gonna you know do the take the path that you wanted me to take um so I I think it's a little bit loaded yeah and I I love that Octavia already seems like super invested in Gaia's and Indra's relationship like she wants to fix it so that Indra can be happy again yeah and she says you know she's family this is like a sign um I think it it calls back to how she feels about Bellamy and you know no matter what they do to each other and no matter the the unforgivable things that he's done in Octavia's point of view you know like he's still her family and you can't help who your family is and you love them and I I think she's trying to to say all of this to Indra in a way that doesn't like come off too (laughs) wishy-washy right I still have to wonder at this point if Octavia truly still blames Bellamy for um, Lincoln's death. I think maybe once she gets a bit of distance from it, she'll realize that it's not his fault. Like, it wasn't his fault. He didn't no, want that. No, I don't think it's his fault either. I'm a little bit confused where she's at, though, in this scene. I don't know if she still blames him or not. But I do think this is, it bodes well for the future, that she still realizes that, like, family's family, and whatever happens, you still have to come back together at some point. Yeah. Uh, so Octavia knows that Roan is still going to want Gaia's head. So even if she shows him the flame, he's going to know that, you know, Gaia did it and he'll want her dead. Um, but if he doesn't know it's Gaia, she'll be safe. And so Octavia strides off into the darkness to go murder more people. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear what she's about to do. <laughs> um, later on in the throne room, she presents Roan with Taro's head, who's the member of the looting party who was kind of pushing her around earlier. Um, and she lies and says that he was the looter who stole the flame and destroyed it. So when is this going to come back to haunt her? Because I'm guessing very soon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no comment. Just no yes. comment. I mean, it's just like, like you can't keep going around like murdering people who you who present like a challenge. <laughs> you just can't like kill everyone who's in your way. Well, and not just that, too. It's I mean, she just flat out lied to Roan. And when he finds out, I don't think he's going to be pleased. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Uh, He does note that more people now have to die to keep him in power because he doesn't have the flame anymore. Uh, Although, as he puts it, it shouldn't bother Octavia, the Sky Ripper. Yeah. Or does it? I mean, we do see this moment of real emotion on her face that I couldn't really read. Do you think she was maybe examining her actions for the first time this season? I actually think she was just more disturbed by him calling it what it is. I don't think she spent a lot of time evaluating her actions, like you've said. I think having somebody describe it was more alarming to her than actually doing it. I agree. I mean, I think she, when he said that to her, she took a second. It was a hesitation. And then she just moved forward. But there was that moment of hesitation. Yeah, I think she just genuinely had not even con- considered it yet. Right. No, I totally agree. Um, so that's basically the end of that plot line, the war plot line. Yeah. Um, is there kind of a summary here of, of war that we can put together I think there's a couple of things that we wanted to pull out here um obviously you know the war could is very like easily represented um in like the literal sense here in that 
like Rowan and Octavia are actively trying to prevent a war between the clans and trying to keep this coalition alive. But I think this sort of like stretches into the bigger theme of the season um, because one of the like biggest, you know, for lack of a better word, plague during an apocalypse is is infighting. You know, when resources get scarce um, and you kind of have to like put aside your personal vendettas to focus on the bigger picture and how to save humanity that's the time when humans tend to be the the least forgiving the the least um humane and and the scarcity of resources kind of brings out the worst side in people and that's exactly what happens you get this sort of like um panic mode and and infighting happens and they don't even know about the apocalypse yet we're just clearly like in a, in the middle of of political hell but you know it's it's a not a good sign of what happens when they do learn about the apocalypse that's coming yeah, and I'm I'm willing to bet that the uh, war horseman that's just shown up is going to be hanging out for a while. Well, I, I think he's been here for a while. <laughs> he's like setting up a little tent, <laughs> like right outside <laughs> outside the city, sharpening his knives <laughs> like our TV. <laughs> he definitely has his cloak. <laughs> yeah, I just keep borrowing it from him. <laughs> so moving on to our second horseman pestilence mm. um and we definitely see raven as the pestilence horseman in this episode yeah. uh we see her first um basically they find out that the fish and insects are dying off and raven estimates that they have two months to live before the radiation kills them not six months like they previously thought which i'm a little confused why was Allie wrong shouldn't she have been able to coordinate the exact time it would start to affect them i mean you would think but maybe you know I think nature is unpredictable. That's true. So that's what happens. But she was way off. Way off. Thanks a lot, Allie. <laughs> Thanks, Allie. Really nice. Uh, and as Raven puts it, uh, she's talking to Clark and Bellamy, um, choosing who lives and dies is Clark's specialty. So she says that Clark has to make the list of the hundred that's going to live on Alpha Station as soon as possible. Raven is spiraling at this point. Yeah, she's in panic mode. She, I mean, I think the burden of leadership is starting to overwhelm her. That that feeling of being in charge of people's lives is terrifying to her. She's never experienced it before. And the way that Clark and Bellamy, I mean, they don't enjoy it, but they have at least had that weighing on their shoulders now for quite a long time. Yeah, they're normalized to it and she's not. And I think, you know, we've been, especially in the last episode, we saw how judgmental Raven has been in, in a very, like, just sort of, like, unacceptable kind of way like how to speak to your friends and I think this is the first instance where we really start to understand the psychology here it's it's because she's she's panicking and this is almost a defense mechanism for when things get too overwhelming for Raven she has to immediately push that onto somebody else and so she says to Clark you know you know that's what your that's what your specialty is killing people or deciding who gets to live um because she just can't handle it yeah Um, We move on to one of my favorite scenes in the episode. Raven is working and Abby comes in and asks her for meds to treat Luna's people, who we find out at the beginning of the episode are all suffering now from acute radiation sickness. Mm -hmm. Um, Raven said, though, they can't spare anything because Abby needs seven doses and that's a quarter of their supply, which is a ton. Yeah. I mean, like, that's that's such a clear difference of perspective. Abby's like, I only need seven. And Raven's like, that's a quarter of what we have. Yeah. Um, and, and it just goes to show, like, they still have to survive five years once the radiation comes. Mm-hmm. And they only have, what, 28 doses? Yeah. Whew. They're screwed. I, I don't. Yeah, they're screwed. 
Um, Abby, you know, asks, like, at least give me a dose for the child. But Raven says that they can't waste their meds on a long shot. Um, and she also asks Abby, you know, could you guarantee that the meds will save them? Because I read the label and it says they need to be used within 24 hours of exposure. But Abby says, you know, the, the effectiveness goes down, but that doesn't mean that it won't help. Um, I, I think this is a very interesting fight, more so than the fact, like, more so than episode two where we have, you know, save the slaves now or save 400 people later on. This is, it seems more clear cut to me. Yeah, because I think resources can be measured. Right. I mean, like, even if the pills work today, as as Raven says, uh, Luna's people are still going to die in two months unless they find some miracle way to save them all, you know? Right. I think Raven is very practical about this in a way that Abby, being a doctor and having sworn an oath to save people, cannot be practical about this. Absolutely. And I mean, Abby tells Raven that the radiation isn't the one killing Luna's people. It's Raven. And I I find this to be a really unfair accusation. Yeah. I get, I understand why Abby's mad because as you, as you said, she's a doctor. She is always about saving as many people as we can now. Um, but honestly, Raven made the best decision here. I agree. I think again, Raven was put in charge. This is literally her job description. This is her job is to save as many people as she can with the limited supplies that they have. And, you know, I think Abby in the beginning was like, ultimately, it's your call because you're in charge, but I'm just going to guilt trip you endlessly about this. And and that's a really unfair thing to do to somebody whose responsibility is, is in charge of all of these people. I mean, it's a, it's a luxury that Abby is not that that Abby has that Raven doesn't. I think it's so unfair. It's it's not right to put that burden on her when she really is making the best decision that she can right now. Um, and I know that Raven hasn't had to make these kinds of decisions yet, but this one in particular, it, it just like you don't, you can't do everything and you really need to be stocking up Alpha Station right now. Yep. These people... I mean, unless you want to give them room on Alpha Station so they can live with you once the, you know, nuclear storm comes, then you're just prolonging their suffering because even if you cure them now, they're going to die a terrible death later. And I also think it sets a very dangerous precedence. You know, who knows how many people are going to come out of the woodwork seeking salvation when things get ugly. And, you know, we're having to, like, cull down the list to 100 people and it's a bad precedence to be like at the first sign of 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 weakness and um somebody coming begging for help to just be like oh well never mind our plan like I'll just help you because you look weak. I mean we're basically fighting the, for the survival of humanity at this point. Yeah. Um and I know that we've talked about there are never right or wrong answers on the hundred and that's true, but this one is more right than other ones to us. To us, but also just like in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. It, it Raven made the only choice that she really could here. Yeah, I agreed. Uh, later on, we find out um, Murphy steals the pills and Raven notices that the meds are gone. And so she kind of runs into the med bay, but Murphy stops her from barging over to where Abby is. Um, Abby sees her and comes over and tells Raven, you know, don't worry, we only wasted one dose because we come to find out that the little girl they gave the pill to did not take to the pill. The pill did not help or cure her effects, and she is dying. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really appreciate Abby's judgy face here. I mean, we just kind of talked about how maybe she shouldn't put that burden on Raven in this particular situation, but I think even more so now that she knows that she was wrong and the pills didn't work, 
now she has wasted a pill and for nothing. Yeah, and I, I actually really like this word wasted. You know, she says this sort of sarcastically as if that weren't the case. But you you did waste it. That's actually exactly what you just did. Right. This is like you don't have the moral high ground here because this is exactly what Raven was afraid of. And I think, you know, we'll talk a little bit about this later, but the word wasted and how you like evaluate what's worth taking a risk for in this scenario sort of is an interesting word to use. Right. I think Abby used the word wasted um, when she was asking Raven for the pills earlier, like you would call one or seven lives a waste or something mm-hmm. along those lines. And I think if the girl had lived here, that would have been fair to kind of throw back at her, at least from Abby's point of view. But because the girl died, it was a waste of a pill. It did nothing. Right. And like, I think Raven is calculating this based on material and and Abby is, t- is, is measuring this through effort. You know, it, it, it's not a wasted effort because we could have saved a life. And I think Raven is thinking like it was a wasted effort because we didn't save a life. And now we're at 27 doses. Right. Um, but Raven does have to watch the little girl die. Is it Adria? Adria. Adria, the little girl's name. Um, and it's like at this point, you know, Raven was right and she knows she's right. But it's still so hard to see the consequences of your choices firsthand. And she really, I think has to start seeing people as people and not numbers. She has to find a balance for that to really be able to make informed decisions. Yeah, it's it's the first time she's really come face to face with the consequences of her actions because even though they disregarded her, the outcome was the same. And she essentially condemned this little girl to die. And looking at that straight in the face and having it so physical in front of her, you can see, I mean, like Lindsay Morgan, her eyes well up and there's this sort of look of, of shock on her face where you can see it sort of setting in exactly what the cost of human life looks like, um, even though she made the right cho- choice. It's exactly. still something impossible for her to live with. It's not regret, but she still has to acknowledge yeah. what she's done. Um, and I really love to, just a note in this scene, Nyko's and Luna's relationship is so lovely. Um, I didn't know that they knew each other. I don't know if they knew each other either, but they seem to have sort of like a, a mutual respect for one another just because they're both sort of pacifist grounders. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I got to call out Nad- Nadia Hilker, who plays Luna, her acting here while she's rocking Adria away and and you can see her like bodily shaking. It's just incredible performance. I, I, I was definitely tearing up. She just totally got to me. I mean, from literally the moment that Luna was introduced last season, I have been one of her biggest fans. She's incredible. She's and, amazing. And not just her hair, which is <laughs> so good. I'm very jealous. I'm jealous of her hair. But I just mean also, you know, like Nadia's performance. She's just the caliber of acting they have on this show on top of the writing, on top of the, the producing the level of acting is is so incredible and it really brings everything to a new level. Just from everyone. It's, from it's everyone. amazing to see those performances across the board. Yeah, and I think they sort of prop each other up. Mm-hmm. Um, so to wrap up the Pestilence Horseman, uh, I think we have a literal interpretation here of Pestilence as ARS, which, you know, everyone will be able to feel the effects of in two months time now. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this this idea of Raven having to choose to allow the disease to kill Luna's people. Uh, and there's one definition of Pestilence that's, you know, something that's considered harmful, destructive, evil. And I think that now that Raven has been tasked with deciding whether people should live or die, she might become a pestilence to herself and others like does yeah. she does she need to start making these morally gray decisions 
for the greater good and, and how is that going to affect her as a human being yeah I mean if you think of pestilence as sort of like a corruption it sort of like spreads inside and so you have this like one kernel that was like the first decision that leads to the next decision and it's just like this corruption and pestilence grows not all not alone with like in the camp but within Raven herself you sort of see her transforming into this this you know this icon of death of of pestilence um and she has to like sort of you know, I just like imagine her with like the hood and the scythe and <laughs> scary. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on, we have the famine horsemen and we definitely see, I mean, I think it's obvious. We see Murphy as, as this particular horseman um, because as we open up, Imori and Murphy have no food. There is not even bugs in the woods anymore, which is very foreboding for those of us who know what's going on. Yeah. They don't. <laughs> so they're not as concerned yet. Well, I think they are confused, though. They are confused. I mean, Amori is definitely like, I, I've lived out of this forest for a long time. I don't understand. Yeah. But they don't know that they it's... They don't know. <laughs> literally the apocalypse. Yeah. Um, Murphy brings up the fact in their discussion here. He, he says he had no choice about having sex with Antari. And we are so glad this was addressed. Because, like, Murphy, he isn't the type to dwell on this. But we're really glad that it was acknowledged, that he acknowledged it. The, the, the truth of the matter is that he was raped. Yeah, and I think it's important that the show emphasizes that this was rape. I saw a lot of activity online about how Murphy, you know, was kind of into it. That this was kind of kinky. Things that... I think that if you're a critical viewer of what was going on, there was really no other way of interpreting it other than rape. And I'm really glad that the show took the time and, and specified it that way. Right. And I think for Murphy, like he will do what he needs to do to survive. That's what he needs to do to survive. That doesn't mean that it was any less so rape, you know? Well, right. It doesn't mean that it was any less. Um, it was still not consensual. Right. Even consensual though he, is the word I was looking for. You know, there are plenty of cases in real life where people engage in sexual activity for their own survival um but they're they wouldn't choose that themselves right if you're not saying yes out of your own free will it's rape right on either end there's no there's no gray area here this is black and white so i'm so happy that was shown oh yeah and, and they didn't dwell on it but it also they established it and now we're moving forward yeah i think like we did we talked about last episode where amori just like really briefly mentioned why she took the chip you know just these like little nuggets that they keep adding to build out their relationship really enhances it um and it's not necessary but again it's just so helpful it's really just reestablishing my faith in the writers this season um and it's this season's been so great so far and it's only episode three so really strong stuff uh, Murphy decides to go back to Arcadia to steal some of their food. Um, can we just say, like, we ship them so hard. Oh, my God. I ship them so hard. They're so cute. They're perfect for each other. Hashtag married. <laughs> and we'll get to that more in a second. But uh, just wanted to put that out front right now. <laughs> yeah, we are way into. Um, we see Arcadia kind of coming up as Murphy is walking toward the front gates. Uh, and Miller and his dad are guarding and Murphy is a little moment where he kind of flirts with Miller, it's really funny. which is hilarious. He does bring up Brian. So it's very clear um, on Miller's face that things are not okay with him and Brian at the time. Yeah, they're still not over it. Yeah. Uh, and we do love that Miller and his dad patrols together. It's so cute. Yeah, the family that patrols together stays together. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. 
Um, Murphy sneaks in while Raven is working. Uh, he goes in to steal the food, but when Abby comes in to ask for the meds, he hides. So we see him kind of interspersed with Abby and Raven. He's hearing all of this apocalyptic news for the first time, and we get to like see all of his expressions as he realizes that the world is about to end. Yeah, I love how this scene sort of like switches, you know, emphasizing the Abby and Raven interaction, but then also like equally giving importance and weight to Murphy and his realization of what's going on here. You know, I think we sort of take for granted that they don't know what we know and it's really nice to just see this sort of like spectrum of of reaction on his face plus it's just fantastic writing that we can accomplish that much in one scene yeah it's like this like super condensed yeah moment (laughs) um so murphy ends up stealing the medicine for abby that the one that she went and asked raven for and gives it to her and abby like doesn't even question it she just tells jackson to give a pill to the little girl adria um, they want to give it to her as a test first, and if she responds, they're going to give it to the rest. Um, I guess first and foremost, is Adria Luna's daughter? Like, what is their relationship? She's either, like, her surrogate daughter, or maybe, like, Luna looks at her, you know, as the leader of Flow Crew, and she's sort of a mother to all of her subjects. Or maybe they are blood-related. I, I don't know. Yeah, she did. Her lover did die in, in season three, so she could be her daughter. I mean, it doesn't have to be him either. Yeah, it's been. not a good enough excuse the word to use the word lover. But well, I, I don't know what else to it. call them. I'm pretty sure they partner, <laughs> partner. Okay, life sure. partner, life I don't know. partner. I hate that word. <laughs> it is a very like I hate it. romance book word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I I I don't think it's her real daughter, but I do feel like she has a connection with this girl that she might not have had with other people on the on the. Yeah, she, she on, definitely feels like her guardian. Yeah, no matter what. Um, I as we're seeing here, the little girl is taking the pill, and I really hope there's a scene later in this season where they need that last radiation pill and they no longer have it. I mean, we get this all from the POV of like save lives now, as we did from um, episode two. But it's also really important that we see the other side of the argument because sometimes, sometime in the future, you know, it's going to be now and you're going to be in this position where maybe you're a pill short. And at that point, there's nothing you can do. You can't go back and change it. Yeah, I feel very confident we're going to see this come into play later. The, sh- the show is not, they, they don't throw things away. Um, so I, I do think this is going to come into play later, especially because they, like, they use the pill. You know, it's not like they talked about it. I mean, like it's gone. It is gone. I, I'm not sure we'll get this later unless this season they somehow have to like treat everybody for radiation disease. So like before they even go into the alpha station and seal themselves off, those pills are gone. If those pills aren't gone by then, we're going to have a five-year time jump. So I don't think, or I mean, I'm assuming we are. I don't think we'll get them I just stuck. feel like it's really early in the season to conjecture. I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know. I mean, I'm fairly certain we'll get a time jump after this part. I think that they've made it clear that the radiation storm is coming. We need five years. I mean, maybe not. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, so Jackson points out to Abby that Murphy's father got floated for stealing Murphy meds. Um, I love this. I love this so much. I knew as soon as he brought the pills in that that was the connection they were going to make. Absolutely. Um, but I'm still so glad they made it. It was like a brilliant plot point 
that also added to Murphy's character in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, it's a, not only, again, like the consistency from season one to now, um, it's just, it's so telling of like the choices that Murphy's making here. And we can get into this a little bit later, but I do love this sort of like, we don't really get to see a sentimental side to Murphy very often. And I love this just sort of like, sort of like emotional weightiness that we get with this decision. And you can kind of tell that Abby is proud of Murphy. And I was trying to remember, did they really ever interact in the past? I don't, I can't quite, I cannot pinpoint it, but I assume at some point they have. I'm, I'm guessing it would have been in season two. Yeah. But it's still not hitting with me. So, well, um, but he was off with Jaha for most of season two. Well, but he was still around when Finn died. That's true. Um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm. She must have been around yeah. at some point. I, but we'll just, we'll just assume. It was kind of weird. It was like Abby, don't pretend that you and Murphy are that close. Well, but <laughs> like, it's also like you know, I think Jackson says, "I didn't know he had it in him," and Abby's like, "I did," and it's kind of like she just wants to adopt all of the delinquents. I think she just thinks of herself as like Mother Goose. And she's also very clearly easily manipulated, as we'll see later on. Yeah, Um, she always wants to look for the best in people. Right. And sometimes the best is buried deep, deep down. And sometimes (laughs) people don't have the best intentions. That's that's true. Uh, Murphy ends up returning to Amori and tells her about the upcoming radiation storm and says, you know, we basically need to be on Alpha Station when those doors seal. And Amori doesn't even blink. She just like says, okay, well, what can we do to make ourselves useful? I I love this survival instinct in hers. Yeah, they are very, very strongly matched. I love that she she doesn't hesitate. She doesn't question him or how he got this information. She just takes it for face value and is like, all right, how can we we make the most out of this and make sure that we survive? Right, and on the survival train, Murphy says, you know, I've already started working on Abby, which just goes to show that he didn't have – completely honorable intentions when he gave her that medicine yeah he had ulterior motives for sure and it's really fantastic to see him working on both levels here as as he often does but you have the emotional level of him stealing meds for a child in the same way that his father did for him like you can't discount that no but then you also have this really strategical choice he made of you know kind of getting close to abby and and getting on her good side because he's going to need it later on right i think when people ask me like what how could you even define what a complex character is like, this is the perfect example of a complex character. I mean, I think just the fact that there was not a soul alive who didn't hate Murphy in season one, to there are very few people now who do hate Murphy in season <laughs> I four. I love him. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So I guess all in all, Murphy and Imori fit each other so well in terms of they have similar goals and they take similar steps to reach those goals. Yeah, I actually wanted to take a second and talk about the way that the 100 sort of constructs relationships and sort of partners because um, the English nerd that I am, you know, (laughs) some of the ways that we sort of like structurally categorize love love stories or romances, um, for lack of a better word, is there's this this uh, idea of symmetrical love and this idea of complementary love. And examples of complement or symmetrical love are like where you have two people who are have like a very strong affinity. You know, they're both like and they're they're very symmetrical in their goals and their behavior. Um and complementary love, vice versa, is actually where they're very opposites, sort of like an opposites attract kind of thing. And I think when you look at like the the way that this the show sort of structures relationships, you have memory, um, Amori and Murphy, who are very much this like paragon of symmetrical love. They are so aligned, they're so in sync, they're very much sort of like 
identical clones of one another, boy and girl. And then you have Belark. Um, and we'll get into much this a lot more later. But I think when you think of like opposites and how they complement one another, you know, Bellamy and Clark are so inherently different people and they approach problem solving very differently um and they they have different attributes that are strong and weak they complement one another one another very well whereas emory and um, murphy are very very much alike i love that so much and it makes me wonder um if emory were that the complementary type how murphy would how he would evolve as a character because right now his and her goals align so perfectly that they don't need to like push each other to be any different than they already are right there's no um there's no evolving of their relationship they don't learn from each other they they help each other and they love each other but there's again there's not that like sort of push and pull that you see in in bell arc that um is is interesting to think about i don't know if he would be a attracted to her if she would push him in that way I, I don't know wondered that. I don't think he would I think the fact that they're so alike is appealing to him I don't think Murphy can be changed no no I don't think so I think that's why he's so into her nor do I want him to be changed because I think she I think it's it's freeing for him to be with somebody who doesn't constantly question him and judge him right yeah so all in all OTP oh, we love them we love them <laughs> Um, and to wrap up the the famine horsemen that we have going on here, um, Murphy and Amori are basically going to starve if they don't steal from Arcadia, right? Yeah. Uh, and the hundred that are going to be sealed up in Alpha Station might also slowly starve because of low rations. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the famine and starvation through line is very clear. But um, I think we can extrapolate from this, given the scarcity of resources, you know, I think it's going to bring out this sort of like new or even like insidious sides to our characters. I think Murphy and Emery um, demonstrate that beautifully as when they, you know, they're going to have to adapt to survive. And I, I think, you know, of the whole cast of characters, these are like the most adaptive of beings. You know, I, I feel like they're like the evolution. They're like the Darwinism of the show. They're going to have to become team players to survive, which neither of them have done before. But. No. Um, and this sort of like moral dilemma that the show sort of always sort of puts in the foreground of, of, of choices for yourself versus other, you know, it's always been explored in the show, but has never been this urgent before. So it's going to be really interesting to see. And when you have characters like Murphy and Amori who are willing to do whatever it takes to survive, including exploiting other people, uh, they're probably going to be the ones who come out on top. So yeah, they're, they can stomach that sort of level of, of, of dis, you know, disgust. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they would be disgusted at all. They're no, just, I mean what I would do. Oh, well, our me. disgust. My disgust. <laughs> Discomfort, uh, I think maybe is a better word. Discomfort. So moving on to the last horseman, of course, death. And who else could we put for death but Clark and Bellamy? Yeah, no. The king and queen of death. <laughs> <laughs> the commanders of death between both of them. Yeah, um, so true. We, we see Clark, Bellamy, and Raven working on rationing their supplies and it's really interesting to note that Nyla is apparently helping them cure meats. Yeah, it's nice that she's, like, around. I like that they haven't forgot about her. She's she's still, you know, out there. And she's still helping them even after what they did to her last season. Yeah. Um, but Bellamy says that he doesn't plan on being the hundred that's inside the Ark when the storm comes. And Clark just refuses to accept that. Yeah, she's like, absolutely not. <laughs> you will be in there if I have to drag you in by your hair. <laughs> yeah. You are not getting a say in this. 
Uh, Raven does say that it's Clark's job to make the list. They have to know who this hundred will be, who will be inside the uh, Alpha Station when it closes. Um, I think it's interesting to note here that, you know, Raven's so lonely because she doesn't have anyone to really support her in the way that Clark and Bellamy support each other. Yeah, you can see the panic. I mean, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but she's just completely spiraling out of control she's I think really the only one who can like fully comprehend the gravity of the situation they're facing you know her computer brain will not turn off she doesn't have the luxury of detaching herself from the terror that this problem presents the way that Clark and Bellamy do and she she can't escape it and I think it's really starting to break her down right she thinks in numbers so in her mind she just sees numbers counting down every second every minute every day yeah it's like a, a clock yeah um, we see Nyko show up outside the gates of Arcadia, uh, with Luna and her clan, who are all suffering now from acute radiation sickness. And Clark and Bellamy realize with horror that the radiation is already here. It's not here in six months. It's here right now. Yeah, the problem is, is now. Um, so Luna and her clan are taken into the med bay. Without treatment, there's really no chance that they're going to survive from the radiation poisoning. Uh, and Luna asks Bellamy if she deserves this for refusing the flame. And he says, no one deserves to suffer, which I find a ridiculous statement coming from Bellamy because Bellamy beats himself up on like a daily basis. Yes. He just like flagellates himself all the time. Yeah, like misery loves company and he cannot forgive himself and loves being miserable. I, it makes me wonder, I don't understand why he can't see that. Or maybe he sees it and just doesn't care. No, I don't think he can see it. I think that he I think it's I think you're a always harder on yourself I think b it's easier to see sort of the gaps in other people than it is in yourself um and I, I also think that he doesn't deserve forgiveness he doesn't deserve to be happy right now you think he doesn't or he thinks he doesn't he thinks he doesn't mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and I, I I think he sort of like has excused himself from the, the collective no one deserves to suffer except for me I, I appreciate his kind of reinforcing the we save who we can today mentality that he has here that he he started to think of other people aside from just the Arcadia people as as people yeah this is really like the first time that we've seen him um look at grounders humanly I mean I think we did a little bit in season two when he was inside the uh Mount Weather yeah but in season three he was lost yeah no he's definitely making a nice return uh, Jaha outside reveals to Clark, Bellamy, and Raven that there might be another bunker within Azay's drive of the Ark that can sustain thousands of people. Um, first and foremost, he was just going to take the rover and not tell anybody? I can't stand this. <laughs> it is really aggravating to me. Like, you're not in charge anymore. You have to recognize and respect the, like, you know, levels of leadership here in government, as flimsy as they may be. You can't just, like, take these, like, very needed resources whenever you feel like. I just, like, can't. I know, I know. And I also wonder how many bunkers are actually out there? Like, they have two months. Could they maybe go to a bunker that's, I don't know, five days drive away? Like, could they do a little bit of research here and figure out if there are any other viable solutions? I don't know. And again, it's sort of that question of like, how much risk are you willing to take and waste these resources looking for a solution that doesn't exist? Yeah. I do wonder, you know, they, they evaluated all of these bunkers 
government bunkers in the area. And it turns out that they all aren't viable for some reason. Um, and I'm kind of wondering what their evaluation for these were. Like, were they 100% sure that none of these are viable? I, I don't know. I feel like if Raven says they're not viable, they're not viable. Well, I don't think Raven said they're not, they're viable. She or said not viable. they looked through all of the files. Well, but Raven didn't. She said that they did when they were being sent down to Mount and Weather. I'm seeing when she was looking through the files if something looked suspicious to her I think she would have caught it well I think as far as Raven knows like they did the evaluation themselves like I don't know if Raven's actually seen the evaluation materials because she wasn't really working with them at that time I don't know I feel like they're saved on their hard drives though and she could pull them up yeah maybe I don't know I don't know if she has um so they apparently discover that there's this cult called the Second Dawn who built their theology around surviving the upcoming apocalypse. And their leader may or may not have built a bunker for this purpose. Um, Raven doesn't want them to go. She wants the rover to stay here for repairs, which is fair. Uh, I mean, I it's a good it's reason. I think it's very fair. If they don't find anything, they've lost another day. Yeah. Um, but if they do find something, then that could be the answer to all of their problems. Right. Um but if Clark doesn't find what she's looking for here, she promises that she will make the list. Yeah. I think this is Clark basically saying, let me just have this one last thing before I commit to your plan. I need it for me. She's still just like desperately holding on to hope that there's another way out there. Yeah. Uh, so as Jaha, Bellamy, and Clark are all driving, they watch a video of Bill Cadogan, who is the founder of A Second Dawn, and he's giving this speech about the end of the world right before the bombs drop that he specifically mentions government technology has become a weapon that will destroy them. And I guess first and foremost, did this Bill guy, did he have inside knowledge about Ali and what was coming? Yeah, I'm not sure if this was sort of like just like a random occurrence of like a doomsday apocalypse. They exist. Or if it was actually in preparation for the very real apocalypse. I mean, in any given day and time, you can find some person out there preaching the end of the world. Right, so that's maybe, what I'm saying. Maybe he just got lucky, but this is the hundred and nothing is done for no reason. Yeah, I feel like he must have known. They specifically said he gave this speech right before the bombs dropped. So yeah. I'm thinking there's a little bit more going on here. I agree. Uh, and also... You know, we barely get internet in New York City, let alone in a post-apocalyptic wilderness. How are they getting internet here? I don't know. I, I just, I'm, I was like kind of shocked. <laughs> it's like this like YouTube video and I was like, how, how do you have that? I guess it's possible they downloaded it to the, to the, the tablet that they're using, but yeah. I don't know. Um, I did want to briefly mention, you know, they, they in the speech, Bill could, could, Doggin mentioned specifically that like all of these man-made institutions like government and technology have now become weapons that will destroy them and I think this show when it's operating on all cylinders is social commentary and I do think that while they cannot plan what's going to happen when they you know write these episodes there is some really crazy parallels between these kinds of speeches and what's going on in our own I mean, society. It is so woke. I think with this season in particular, they had more of a taste of what was going to come last season when Pike was introduced. And, you know, being able to compare him with Trump in America in real life yeah. was a little scarily on point. Yeah, it was like what happens with like mass hysteria and you get into like all of these questions of, of leadership and, 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 and elections and like all this crazy stuff. And this is like again like sort of the aftermath of what comes next and they're just so on point yeah like electing leaders based on fear is something that they explored now uh and now we have a leader who could 
cause a nuclear apocalypse as well. So <laughs> I think we all are, uh, we're all, you know. Sort of on the same page here. Taking note. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Jaha thinks Kadogan might have used the money from his church to expand a bunker underneath the house he grew up in. Uh, first and foremost, Jaha identifies with this cult leader. Like, he is like, yeah, this guy did whatever it took to save his people, which, you know, makes total sense for Jaha's character. Yeah, I mean, Jaha, the king of cults, is always looking for a miracle solution. Just takes me back to his, like, Moses days. Yeah, like <laughs> him with his staff crossing the desert. <laughs> I can't with him. There's like nothing more we can say about that. I it's just, just cannot <laughs> handle him. Um, uh, Jaha and Clark find the spot where the cabin is. Uh, and at this point, Bellamy makes a joke, which basically dooms us all. He's, you know, if anyone's entitled to a lucky break, we are. I was like actually like actively like, take it back, Bellamy. Take it back. <laughs> um, as Clark goes off to search for the bunker entrance, Jaha tells Bellamy that Clark is lucky to have him because he keeps her centered. And Bellamy says, you got that backwards. Um, so Jaha is suddenly number one Bellark stan after one rover ride. Yeah, he has now elevated himself in my esteem <laughs> multiple points. At this, <laughs> this only function on the show is to ship them. <laughs> I can live with that. That's fine. And I think, I, I mean, you and I have talked so much about how Bellamy and Clark kind of keep each other on the right path. Um, I always look at them as like bumper cars. So if you have one bumper car by itself, it's just going to go everywhere. But if you have two bumper cars together, they're going to like keep each other going in the same direction. Absolutely. And I, I love that they actually use this phrase, you keep her centered, because I think like in commentary of the show, like most of the fandom uses that phrase specifically, like they center one another. They are each other's centers. And it's so great to see that represented in the show. Um, you know, verbatim. And yeah, not just like represented, but it's great for someone to call it out to their faces. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's clear here too that Bellamy still considers himself as less than Clark. Yeah, I think that's super interesting because they're obviously equals in terms of what they bring and contribute to one another. Um, and I think Bellamy looks views them sort of as a yin and yang where Clark represents the light and he represents the dark. And, you know, she is what makes him good. But that is just not true. You know, they are equal in what they give to one another. And he is just as valuable to her as she is to him. I just don't think he recognizes that. Absolutely. And I think, like, he doesn't see it, but clearly other people do. I mean, Jaha's the one who's pointing it out to him. He's not saying, you know, she's good for you. He's saying you're good for her. And Jaha knows Clark very well because, you know, he, raised, he, he helped raise her. He, I mean, Wells was his son and Clark and Wells were best friends, even though Wells is never mentioned in the show. We we're not going to get into that. that. Um, but he, like, knows who Clark is. And I think him being able to point out to Bellamy the effect that Bellamy has on her style of leadership is really important. Yeah. And something that Bellamy needs reminding of constantly. Constantly. <laughs> like all the time. Uh, Jaha also tells Bellamy that he doesn't have to keep blaming himself for killing the army because since his intentions were pure, he has nothing to atone for. And this is so wrong. This have is so wrong to me. Having pure intentions does not absolve you from the consequences of your decisions. Absolutely not. Jaha, you sound ridiculous. He does. He, he sounds like an idiot. And also, we get this like sort of taste of how he justifies his own actions. He's, he's spent like the last two episodes, you know, I say in quotes, atoning for all that he has wrought. And yet here he's saying that like as long as your intentions were pure, like 
you don't ha- need to take the blame for it. So I'm actually curious, like, how much does he actually believe that he needs to atone for? Yeah, like, he feels, it feels very fake. I think he... And I think that's what's so irritating and why I'm constantly calling him out on it because it seems fake. Even before we get this, like, you know, little you know, piece of advice that he gives. I think he knows that he needs to atone in the eyes of other people. He doesn't need to atone in the eyes of himself. And I think those are two very different things. Whereas Bellamy needs to atone in the eyes of like God and the devil and everyone else in between. Yeah. I mean, Jaha just feels very, very like everything is a facade. Um, And I think it's really interesting how this like, you know, parallels really nicely with the way that Cain was giving Bellamy advice on this and forgiveness and yourself and other things. It's almost, it was like very similar language that they were employing. Um, but when Cain was giving it to Bellamy, it felt right. It felt like a, a relief almost. Um, and when, and when uh, Jaha is saying it here, it just feels so wrong. And you, there's like red flags everywhere. Right. I, I mean, I'm not as hate on Jaha as you are. I think Jaha as a person drives me crazy, but Jaha as a character I love because I think he brings this really unique aspect to the show that we wouldn't have otherwise. He's just this like lone wolf out there doing his own thing, messing everything up for everybody, and yet he kind of still sticks around. He like he won't go away. I think the word you're looking for is barnacle. He's a barnacle. But I'm I'm glad he's Which here. Which is bacteria. I'm glad he's here because I I think he brings a lot to the discussion, even if it's things that I don't agree with personally. I agree with that. I mean, I, I can appreciate that, but it, it just doesn't, it, it's not enough for me to like not loathe him. I mean, I guess Bellamy also is not buying Jaha's, you know, crap right now. You know, he says, if you're wrong and there is a hell, I guess I will see you there. He's just calling Jaha out for trying to justify his own bad actions. And I love it. It's one of Bellamy's more insightful moments. It is. And I think that he can tell that... I feel like Jaha is almost trying to ingratiate himself to Bellamy and Bellamy is not having it. He will not warm up to you. No, thank you. Yeah. And I do wonder if Bellamy ever will be able to forgive himself for what he done or if he even deserves to. Honestly, I don't think so. I don't think he will ever forgive himself. I don't think so either. And I, I, I mean, I think we can debate till kingdom come whether he deserves it or not. I think it's too early to tell at this point. I think we couldn't even make the call as to whether he deserves it because we don't know the kinds of horrible things we would do to survive ourselves. Yeah, it's very hard to put yourself in his shoes, but I still think at this point it's it's really early in, in his like processing to even like get too close to an answer to that. And I think it's safe to say that if he doesn't forgive himself, he's still going to build upward from this yeah. and I think this might always be something that's inside of him some kind of guilt that sticks around but he can overcome it yeah and make something with his life yeah and have meaning in his life and and help other people mm-hmm. um so they end up finding the underground bunker and outside of the door lies this skeleton with the red with the second dawn seal and it shows that this poor guy or, or girl was at level 11 kind of stuck outside the the door of the bunker yeah So he basically had to reach 12 to attain salvation, and he was only at 11. And it's just kind of like, can you imagine what that must have been like to be so close and to be locked out? I mean, clearly it wouldn't have helped, as we see very soon, but it still, it makes me think about what his last moments must have been like. Right. 
Uh, also, we see that from the ashes, we will rise is the cult slogan. And it also happens to be the slogan for this season. So how is this going to play out going forward? I'm assuming it's going to, you know, play a big role. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like the literal interpretation where it's like the like the actual <laughs> ashes of, of the mess of last season and how they're going to survive and build something anew. And then the apocalypse of like, devastation everywhere I do I think you know in terms of interpersonal relationships there's a lot of work to be done here I think there's a lot of ways you can interpret this as dark as it sounds I really love how hopeful this is you know like absolutely everything can be destroyed around us but we're still gonna persevere I mean it's Harry Potter Order of the Phoenix like (laughs) of course we like this yeah yeah uh also Bellamy makes another joke when he says like not this guy, <laughs> which Bellamy, stop joking. You're cursing everything. I know. <laughs> stop trying to have a sense of humor. You got rid of that like a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, also, it is interesting to see how they measured people to be included in the bunker. Yeah. You know, like, like, is it really so different from how Clark is going to have to call down the list later on? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's interesting to to like sort of look at this as like oh this crazy cult look at this poor guy standing outside of the bunker they couldn't have just let him in but these are the kinds of decisions and the reality that Clark and Bellamy are going to face in two months it's true I guess like maybe this guy they didn't have the rations for him right I mean and it's like maybe they had religious reasons for for how they let people in but are those reasons any better than how Clark and Bellamy are going to have to decide who makes it onto the list yeah So I think that puts that in very strong relief. It does. It does. And I guess we'll see going forward how this plays out. Yeah. Um, So the door to the bunker is sealed and Clark wonders if they could still be there. And then Bellamy knocks like a polite gentleman should, which honestly seems more like a Tumblr meme to me than something that actually happened. But it did happen. He's basically like, excuse me. (laughs) It was the best moment. I loved it so much. Very, very dorky. (laughs) So they end up deciding to use a winch to kind of unseal the door. But as soon as they're inside, they realize that this is another dead end, quite literally in this sense, uh, because cultist soup. Yeah, yummy. Uh, It wasn't properly sealed, so the radiation must have seeped in and killed them within days. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) it must smell really bad in there. Yep. Uh, I wonder if they would still be decomposing after an entire century. That seems like a stretch to me, but I don't really know a ton about how that works I mean maybe because it was like insulated and they're not exposed to the elements they're not decomposing at such a rapid rate I don't know so I guess seeing the uh the nice you know room that we found here with all of the dead bodies do you think this day was a waste um I think that is an interesting question this this episode really focuses on the idea of waste and resources both medicinal and material and also the value of time um I think you have to look at this as like they've wasted an entire day how do you calculate that I mean it's it's hard to say I think again like with the medicine with Raven if it had succeeded you could measure it as yes it was worth it the fact that both of their risks this episode turned up nothing I think is going to really affect how they weigh these decisions going forward I don't think they can afford it I think that they're gonna have to deal with the reality of these really tough decisions coming ahead and I think they could you know maybe this was a a lesson maybe the what was worth it here was just the lesson and stop taking these kinds of risks maybe I mean I get where you're coming from I do think as a watcher of this show 
there's no way they would have put this in there as just a, we need Jaha to start standing Bellamy and Clark. <laughs> so I do think there's going to be, this is going to play a huge role. Second Dawn's going to play a huge role. This bunker is somehow going to come back. I don't know how. Maybe they're going to find a way to seal it up again. We also find out at the end of the episode certain things that might make this a, a temporary refuge for people. Um, I don't know if it was an entire waste. No. Although, of course, the characters don't know this. Right. I was just going to say, are we speaking narratively yeah. or like in plot? I'm, I, I'm looking at both both right. levels. I was so. speaking as like a character here. But I also, I still don't think that it was too much of a risk to have the hope to save 400 people, especially because they only took one rover. I agree. I think they needed this one day. That's fine. But maybe we need to start reevaluating moving forward. I mean, I still think that Clark and, you know, Bellamy by proxy is on the let's save everyone train. Clark, definitely. I don't know how we're going to do that, but I think at the end of the episode, we at least have a little bit of hope that that could potentially be possible, which we will get to after this (laughs) next scene, which, guys, we're really going to try to keep it together in this scene, but we honestly have no chill here. No. This scene was like everything we didn't know we needed. And we've been waiting for it for a long, long time. So we are going to gush. Um be warned <laughs> and you know if you're not interested in hearing a breath by breath discussion of uh the bellamy and clark scene upcoming uh just know that luna is a nightblood and she might save everybody the end see you next week right if you're still here though then oh my god this, this scene, scene. <laughs> what <laughs> I, i'm having a hard time formulating thoughts or words When I was writing the recap, I didn't even need to watch the episode again to write this because I've already watched this scene like 20 times and have it word for word memorized. I think before the season started, like Sarah and I sat down and made like a checklist of all the things that we wanted to happen for Bellark this season. And it is episode three and all of them have happened. Which is a little nerve wracking. It's scary (laughs) because now we're like in uncharted territory (laughs) and I, I can't, I really like had a checklist in my head. It's like I need an adult to like, you know, acknowledge that one of them has feelings for the other I guess to be fair no one has out loud acknowledged their feelings for one another their significance to one another I would say yes and you know we wanted some adults to sort of like you know be on their side or whatever and we got that in Jaha he clearly like believes in them as a unit and then we also wanted like some affirmative touch of some kind (laughs) I think we were surprised this was episode three yeah we were very confused we thought this was gonna you know and current Bell are great we thought that was gonna take the entire season and we are very we have 10 more to go yeah I don't even know what to do I don't either I'm unprepared I'm a little bit hyperventilating. <laughs> yeah, as you can hear. Um, uh, so let's get into yeah, it. Yeah, let's let's start. Uh, let's start this. <laughs> so Clark and Bellamy are back in Arcadia, and as promised, Clark is now making the list. So at this point, we're at number ninety-nine. She's made everyone else on the list before that, um, and Clark is sitting and watching Bellamy sleep. And she takes a moment and then makes the decision to add his name to the list. Yeah. So. First off, Bellamy sleeping in front of her is so beautiful and so vulnerable. Oh my god, I love it. And I love this inverse from season two when he watches her sleep. You know, I think that was maybe the first time where we really started to get an idea of maybe he isn't purely platonic with Clark. Maybe he is developing some romantic feelings. Um, 
again, hard to decipher, but I think when he was watching her sleep, that was like the first nugget of possibility that we saw. And having that mirrored here from her watching him is is significant and very consciously done. Mm-hmm. I, I it, it was on purpose, guys. <laughs> I again, I'm trying not to gush I'm trying too really much. hard, but I'm very excited. But I didn't know that I wanted a scene of her watching him sleep. I didn't know, I but I did. Yeah, no, it's really, really important. <laughs> also, I, I I do wonder, like, how much of this list did they do together before he fell asleep? Like, did they kind of go in as a unit and start making names, and he's only recently fallen asleep, or was this something that? He, like, came in, plopped down on the couch and was out. And then Clark kind of was, like, trying to sit here, number one. <laughs> I'm sure they were probably talking about how they needed to make a list. And Bellamy was exhausted and fell asleep. And Clark was like, I don't want to have to put them, put him through this. I will do it myself in Clark fashion. I do honestly feel like he at least helped her in the beginning. Maybe. Because that's kind of how they, they work. They, you know, support each other and they're there for each other. And he is still supporting her, just sleeping in the same room. Because I think that's comforting enough to her that she can kind of move forward. Yeah, but- I agree. I definitely agree. But I would like to know about how much of the list they did when he was awake. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Bellamy wakes up and sees that Clark has added his name to the list, really against his wishes. Um, it's like he is Clark distressed radar. Oh, yeah. She, he, she like makes like one tiny sound and he's like, what? I'm up. It's like that scene in Inside Out where like in the boy's mind is just like the little guys are running around throwing things like emergency. Emergency <laughs> mode. Clark is crying. Wake up. <laughs> Um, and I love that he doesn't fight her about being on the list because he really wants her on that list. And I think he knows that she wouldn't let her name be on there if his wasn't. Right. So he's choosing like, instead of me being a martyr, I'm going to make sure you survive. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not going to live for themselves. They're going to live for each other. No, I love it. And I think like the back and not even the back and forth, but the fact that they refuse to put their own names on the list, unless it means that the other person will be on it is just beautiful. It is so emotional and and heartbreaking. It, it was everything. Yeah, it was everything. <laughs> it was everything I wanted. Oh, man. I'm, I'm in trouble, guys. We're not even halfway through the scene yet. <laughs> so now that the list is done, Bellamy tells her that they need to just put it away and hope they never have to use it again. And I do love that he uses we and not you because they are very much in this together. Like, even though Clark is the one who at least finished making the list, like, he still sees this as their duty, their yeah. task. Yeah. Yep. And, of course, the do you still have hope, we still breathing. Um Bellamy, you know, he he clearly said earlier in this episode that Clark is the one who keeps him centered. And yet in this entire episode, he's the one who's keeping Clark from falling apart. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you go ahead. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, I don't think that Clark would be able to do this without him. I mean, she couldn't do this without him mm-hmm. is, the, is, the, is the fact. Right. She, the only way that she can, I mean, Bellamy is her coping mechanism, basically. And the fact that, again, he cannot seem to recognize that is so sad to me. I know. Um, I hope at some point he will be able to to understand how important he is to her. I mean, I, I think he knows that she cares for him deeply. I don't think he values himself enough to think that he's worthy of that. Right, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I just, I don't, know how Clark could move forward anymore she's lost so much in her life like if she didn't have Bellamy I don't know how she could keep going and also the weight the burden of leadership is staggering 
you know, she would crumble without him. I feel heavy for her Mm -hmm. in, like, watching all of these scenes. And in this scene in particular, it's just, like, the relief of having someone there, someone who cares about you as much as Bellamy cares about her. I'm just so happy that she has that. However it ends up in the future, we don't know. I'm so glad that she has this now. Like we said, the checklist is checked off. Like, it that's is. all we wanted. That's why we, we know nothing. Right. So, <laughs> again, uncharted, ter- uncharted territory. I don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, and then we get the uh, hand, shoulder, nuzzle. Oh, my God. What is this? <laughs> it's not platonic. That's what it is. Oh, um, man. I just... <laughs> I can't. I really hope no one stuck around for this because we're embarrassing ourselves. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting here that Bellamy is the one to pull away when it kind of seems like Clark is always the one to pull away first. Yeah, that's true. I think Clark needs this kind of reaffirmation more than Bellamy does at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Bellamy still believes in Clark just as much as he ever has, but Clark isn't quite believing in herself as much anymore. Mm-hmm. And so she really needs that that kind of physical touch. But at this point, He's the one pulling away. She's the one who who could have stayed longer. <laughs> well, I I also think too that it's it's he's pulling away. I think almost in a, in a sense that like he doesn't he doesn't want this to become romantic at this moment. Yeah. He he's he knows she's not ready, and yeah. and he's scared. Um. So he pulls away and he breaks it off just to ensure that there's nothing more going on here. Yeah. I I just. I don't know. Bellamy and Clark looking at each other as Bellamy leaves is my aesthetic. It's our aesthetic. Yeah. Let's be honest. Um, we've been living off a, a diet of just looks and glances between these two for years. And this is a feast <laughs> that we will gorge ourselves on <laughs> till <laughs> till forever. <laughs> really, like if nothing else ever happens between them, this is still good. Yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I, I'm full. Um. And then we see Clark stash the list. Like, you know, like it's not going to be found next episode as we've seen in the promo. This is a giant Chekhov's gun waiting to go Huge off. Huge Chekhov's gun. Like any second is going to go off. Um, I, I do. She didn't stash it very well. No, I'm very like for someone who is so practical. That was so stupid. That was really dumb. I, I'm not really sure how it ends Talk up getting found. Talk about contrived. Yeah. Uh. I, I wanted to talk about if there was anything better they could have done than having Clark make this list. Because the first thing that popped into my head was like, what about a lottery? I, I mean, I know they would have to have a certain number of people who had to be there just to, you know, fix the ship to, I don't know, ration, I, you know, all of those kinds of things. But why couldn't we have had like a 50 person lottery that could have solved a lot of this issue? I feel like by the time that you get through all the the requirements of the different kinds of people with the specific skill sets that they need, I don't think there are that many slots left. Also, you have to remember that like 50% of those people need to be young children so they can repopulate. I actually thought about that a lot. I thought about, um, well, the people that she adds on this list, if they have families, if they have children, like their children or their like wives or husbands would have to be on this list too. Otherwise, if my family wasn't on the list, I would not go into Alpha Station by myself to live. I feel like if the adult, if they said to the adult, the only reason you're on this list is so you can keep everyone alive with X skill, this is not about any of that. Like, we need you. I don't know. I feel like there's an altruistic person who might be able to cope with that. I wouldn't. Maybe. I mean, I, I find that unlikely in terms of most people. I don't think, like, most people would not choose to leave their family, especially their children. No. No. So... I'm I'm really curious to see who was on this list, how they made this list, how they decided, you know, who was important enough and who wasn't. Yeah. Um, 
and like you said, like there has to be some children on the list because they, they have to keep going. Yeah, they have after to repopulate. This, after this, you know, term of, of sequestering. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm really worried for Clark. I don't know if she has the right to make these decisions. Like she's really good at it or maybe good isn't the right word, but qualified. She, she's able to handle it in a way that other people are not. And she is qualified, but does she have the right? I, well, I think we're going to find out whether or not people think she has the right to do this. I think the like knee jerk reaction is probably no. I don't think anybody has the right to, to decide who lives or dies. I think that being the de facto leader that she is and the fact that so many people put their faith in her um, without ever volunteering to do it themselves um, sort of does give her limited power in that way. You know, if you're willing to let her lead you and you have decided that you're going to follow her decisions and, and allow her to make these kinds of choices for you, then you have to live with that. Um, so I, do, I think it's, it's very gray. I mean, I definitely don't think that the people will be pleased with her kind of going forward and making this list. Yeah. But it is kind of like weighing, how else are we going to do this? Somebody and I think has to make these decisions. There's a problem also with the lottery that I didn't really say earlier, but the lottery is the same thing. Like if you get it, but your parents don't or your brother doesn't, are you going to go on and leave them? Of course not. Well, I mean, that's 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 the problem. Right. The problem here is picking 100 people who have no ties to anyone else, which could be easy because they've all lost so many. Yeah, I, I actually think that's probably not as hard as it could be. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very worried for how everyone's going to take it. Oh, yeah, because you know they're going to find out. Yeah. Yeah. So Clark heads to the med bay to check on Luna's people, and she discovers that every single one of them has died except Luna. So Luna's body is rejecting the radiation on its own because we find out she's, I mean, we knew she was a nightblood, but at this point we realize that being a nightblood is kind of kind of save her, at least for now, from that radiation. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we all could see this coming in that like come into the light scene as she walked from the shadows into the light and the light hit her face and you could see that all of the lesions were gone or mm-hmm. at least starting to heal. But it still hit me like a ton of bricks just seeing that change. Yeah, I think we sort of knew there was something special about Luna and that she was going to play a huge role this season and being a Nightblood and how significant that is and how, you know, Nightblood sort of like evolved differently than the rest of the Grounders. I think we were kind of putting all of these pieces together, but seeing it come together so completely like this was just so huge. Right. And I I do think like when we were theorizing, like I said, or like you said, we did um, think that Luna would somehow come into play. But the fact that she's coming into play this early is another like, oh, you know, it's like the Alpha Station. It's great, except it's episode three. It feels like a red herring almost. (laughs) Like, I can't believe that we have a solution this early. Like, it's not going to be that easy. No. Which is sad. (laughs) I wish it could be. I wish they had waited. (laughs) I wish we could have had this later. (laughs) So to wrap up the Death Horsemen, um, I think, I mean, death is clearly a main theme of the entire show. Absolutely. I mean, Clark's title, Juanjeda, literally means commander of death. So it's not surprising that she represents this last horseman and Bellamy with her as kind of a a dual, you know, a duo. Um, But Clark and Bellamy making the list, they're not just listing people who are going to survive on Alpha Station. They're also listing people who are going to die or who aren't going to survive, basically. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a death list as much as it's a life list. Of course. So it's just interesting that the, the death horseman is so concerned with keeping everyone else alive 
And I think it's possible and, and honestly very likely that they won't keep everyone else alive. Um, because, you know, death always wins in the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think um, kind of talking like m- mythologically, like death is always sort of th- this merciful being almost. It's it's like puts people out of their misery. And I think that if you think about it that way, like Clark and Bellamy's intentions are good. They're trying to alleviate the, the most pain that they can or inflict the least amount of damage. And that is a really interesting pair or like you know juxtaposition with the idea of of mass levels of death yeah I am honestly terrified about where this season is going but if we can say anything about the first three episodes is it looks it's promising to be a thrilling season even if it ends up being a tragic season as well right and not just thrilling but also because it's the hundred interesting yeah always always um so I think we're going to skip our favorite scene this episode because we just spent a really long time an embarrassingly long time talking about it yeah and I think it's not a surprise that that was both of our favorite scenes although I do think my second favorite scene is Bellamy knocking on the door to get into like the century-old bunker yes. just like a polite excuse me yeah. <laughs> is anybody home yeah. <laughs> um but what is your favorite line again steering away from an entire plot line in this episode yeah um not including anything that happened between Bellamy or Clark my favorite line uh I think is when Octavia said to Indra if that's what you want me to do I'll do it for you um specifically talking about how to make sure that Gaia survives um with the situation with the flame I just love how packed this this sentence is you know the specific emphasis on the for you that Octavia is referring to you know like also the way she relates to Gaia I just think this is so beautiful and also entirely female again I Mm -hmm. love I love scenes where it's women supporting women and I just this was just so beautiful to me I loved it yeah one thing this show does very very well is getting together a very eclectic group of women who all have different goals and different backgrounds and having them work together in a really beautiful way and different really really different personalities Mm -hmm. absolutely um I think my favorite line in this was Murphy saying to Amori I didn't have a choice Mm -hmm. because again I'm glad they didn't like take a long time to dwell on this but I'm also really glad that it was mentioned and established that this was rape yeah like once and for all he did not have a choice he didn't do it willingly yeah I totally agree I really needed this so next week we'll be talking about a lie guarded what could this be a reference to? Maybe Ali, maybe the list, probably both. Something we will see. Else. <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. Um, so yeah, we'll find out next week. That was our episode. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That's S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T kru at gmail.com you can also tweet at us at skycast and you can find us on tumblr at skycast.tumblr.com you can tweet at us at our own twitter accounts i'm at b perlman 89 and i'm at sarah r mccabe uh, so thanks for joining us on skycast we had so much fun and we will see you next week bye bye